We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we're seeing is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And of course, the dignity of man, humanity, requires equality under the law. Justice blinded to particular influences. Our guest today writes... Simply put, the widening divide between the haves and have-nots is undermining the American dream. Well, this is certainly reality. Today, there's a profound energy determined to change this and save the American dream and keep democracy alive. One of the key factors in the popularity of Senator Bernie Sanders in his run for the presidency has unquestionably been the growing concern about economic security Uh, insecurity in America. When I grew up in the 50s, there was a large and strong middle class. Now, that's pretty much decimated. And a robust middle class is, as America's founders knew, essential for democracy to exist. Instead, there exists today a severe and radical divide between the few super wealthy and everybody else. Not so much of a middle class anymore. Our democracy, the very ability to actually govern ourselves, is barely hanging on by a thread if it's not completely and permanently gone. How did it get that way? Certainly, there's the rapacious, perhaps genuinely pathological greed of the super-rich. But they could not have achieved this plutocratic situation without laws that aid and abet this monstrous class divide. And the structure for making and securing those laws which cause and support the gaping economic divide is something we don't often think about. It's easiest, of course, to blame the big corporations and the big banks who certainly have earned their share of public wrath. But as our guest today, Michelle Gilman, writes... It's not just the greedy top 1% that's to blame for stagnant wages, entrenched poverty, and a widening gap between rich and poor. And it's not just Wall Street, nor is it just those companies that decide to participate in the race to the bottom by moving overseas where they can pay a lot lower wages. Gilman writes, while all these factors and others helped increase inequality, they overlook the role of a key American institution that has also helped widen the gap between rich and poor, the Supreme Court. What a surprise. People don't often think about that as being a big part of the problem. Michelle Gilman, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Michelle Gilman is a professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law, 
Professor Gilman also directs the Civil Advocacy Clinic, where she supervises students representing low-income individuals and community groups in a wide range of litigation, legislation, and law reform matters. Professor Gilman writes extensively about social welfare issues, and her articles have appeared in journals including the California Law Review, the Vanderbilt Law Review, and the Brooklyn Law Review. In addition, she's co-director of the Center on Applied Feminism, which works to apply the insights of feminist legal theory to legal practice and policy. Professor Gilman is the immediate past president of the Board of the Public Justice Center and received the 2010 University of Maryland Board of Regents Award for Public Service. Thanks again for being with us. Well, we've all at least heard of the Gilded Age at the end of the 19th century and I guess going into the 20th century. The commonly held picture is that of a few with great wealth and the many with very little. What was the actual status of economic inequality back then? If we think of the Gilded Age from about the 1870s to the 1920s, um, inequality remained about the same throughout this time period. It was at its peak in 1928 when the top 1% of income earners received 24% of pre-tax income, while the bottom 90% received only half of the nation's income. Today, the top 1% is earning about one-fifth of the nation's income. So we're back to um, the old Gilded Age. In the Gilded Age, the top 0.1%, so those are the very, very richest (laughs) cohort in our country, owned 25% of the wealth. And it's about the same today at 22%. It's this very small group whose wealth is amassing faster than anyone else's. Um, During the Gilded Age, there was no real middle class. The Mm. middle class was Mm. created through political action after the Depression and World War II. Ah, interesting. uh, That's very interesting that it was created, uh, the middle class was. And uh, there must have been laws to enable that to happen. That it, you know, people, some people like to think, oh, just leave the free market to itself. There'll be a middle class. Not exactly right, I guess. It's absolutely not right. It was um, a choice of conscious policies. It wasn't natural. It wasn't inevitable. And the good news about that is we could get back to a strong middle class if we make the right choices today. Aha, I like that idea. A middle class <laughs> is a very nice thing to happen. In terms of laws, with regard to the, to the Gilded Age, when there were very few, I mean, this is Gilded Age uh, 2.0, I guess, right now, was there basically nothing to rein in what were then called the robber barons? I mean, just, just thinking of the laws that enabled the Gilded Age to happen. Yeah. Well, during the Gilded Age, labor was weak. There was Uh no public safety net. The top 1% paid less than 1% in taxes. Mm. It was an era when conservatives were politically dominant. Mm. Many, many Americans lacked the right to vote. And there were also cultural and racial divisions among people who had shared economic interests, but that limited any challenges to the economic and political regime of that time. I will say, however, this was also an era where seeds were sown that would later bear fruit for economic equality, and that's the progressive movement of urban, social, and economic reformers that began during that time frame. 
Uh, interesting. And they, that a lot of them were in the, in the Midwest, believe it or not. I mean, Robert La Follette uh, and, and the whole populist progressive movement came from farmers in the Midwest and the, and the heartland of America. And I, I, I wonder now, you know, here we are in 2016 facing this uh, big election, which way they'll go if there's any uh, remainder of that progressive populist movement. I, I think that there may be because pretty much everybody can see, hey, the system really is, is rigged. And go ahead if you want to comment on that. Well, I was going to say, I think the rise of Bernie Sanders and the number of Americans who are receptive to his message suggests that's still a strong strain in American politics, even if it has been silent for a long time. Yeah, and the, the Democratic Party, which used to be, and for a pretty long time, was at least to some degree the champion of, of the middle class. Then in the 1990s, under uh, the Clinton uh, uh presidency. There was the Democratic Leadership Council, which came in and turned the party around to basically serve rather openly the uh, the very wealthiest because, hey, that was a way to get campaign money. But now uh, the, the identity of the Democratic Party is certainly in question. Uh, getting back to a, a little bit of history, many of us remember the book we hopefully all of us listening read as kids by Upton Sinclair called The Jungle. And that shed an important light on working conditions, on safe food, and did lead to government regulations on, on such things. Prior to that, I'm assuming there was virtually no watchdogs over such things as meatpacking, and there was a lot of unhealthy food. I find it fascinating that there are actual people elected to office now who want to go back to that and have no regulations, even when it comes to requiring food safety. So that that period of legally imposed reform that came after the the outcry after the jungle uh, in those factories did it bring reform in terms of any meaningful economic regulations? Did it also uh, affect the atmosphere of a wild, unregulated economy, or was were the laws that were passed after that just focused on you know food safety and uh, and workplace uh, uh, safety and health? Well, you mentioned a lot of the changes of the progressive era. Uh, they were designed to improve the rights of workers. We also had antitrust laws enacted for the first right, time. Right. The federal income tax was implemented in this time frame. We have the food and drug laws, thanks to Upton Sinclair, and lots of labor legislation. But from a legal perspective, I also want to mention that this is the infamous Lochner era, which is named after a 1905 Supreme Court case in which the Supreme Court held that the Constitution bars a state from interfering with employment contracts. And so in that case, the court struck down a New York state law that had limited the number of hours that bakery employees could work. And this Lochner era and its laissez-faire economic principles went on for about 30 more years. So you have the Supreme Court during this time frame striking down minimum wage laws, maximum hour limitations, rights to join a union, price regulation, and all sorts of other progressive and New Deal legislation, all done in the name of personal liberty. I found one statistic that between the 1880s and the 1930s, the court struck down more than 200 pieces of state and federal legislation in the name of economic liberty. Economic liberty. Uh, there are people, libertarians these days, uh, a lot of people who at least had been with the Tea Party, who whose conception of freedom, it seems to me, is basically limited to two things. Uh, the right to own guns is one, but the other is the right of big corporations to do whatever they want without any restrictions at all. And, you know, it, it seems like uh, we 
one thing I've learned from history is that we don't seem to learn from history and that, you know, we, we just repeating this again and again and again and expecting different results, of course, is the definition of insanity. But uh, here they are now. They want to have just a totally free market and, you know, the, the freedom for the top to do whatever they want without any kind of restrictions certainly inhibits the freedom for the many. I mean, it really does. And the courts have had a lot to do with that. And, and you mentioned, you know, after the Second World War, when I grew up in the 1950s, there was a very large and wide middle class, which did lift the whole economy with so many millions enjoying real purchasing power. They were able to buy all that new stuff that was coming out. Was that a result of, of laws and court decisions under FDR and or Eisenhower? And, and you refer to something in your article in Popular Resistance. Uh, it, it seems so alien today, a shared prosperity. Think about that, a shared prosperity. What were some of the laws that, that made that shared prosperity a reality that may be kind of missing now? Sure. Well, the data fully supports your impression of the 1950s, and this shared prosperity goes all the way through the 1970s. As the Center on Budget Policies and Priorities has summarized, the years from the end of World War II into the 1970s were marked by substantial economic growth, and economic growth for everyone. Incomes grew rapidly and at roughly the same rate up and down the income ladder. Incomes doubled between the late 1940s and the early 1970s, and the income gap was stable throughout this period. So then, you know, you ask the good question, how did this happen? And there was a confluence of many factors that um, are tied to law and politics. So you have the establishment of New Deal programs that established benefits such as Social Security benefits and minimum wage. You had the growth of unions that improved bargaining power for workers. There's also the era of the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement, which diminishes overt discrimination and brings new people um, into the workplace and treats them more fairly. We have tax laws that effectively put a ceiling on top incomes. The GI Bill opens up access to higher education for millions of people. There are mortgage subsidies for veterans that build household wealth. In terms of the Supreme Court, the Lochner era is abandoned in 1937. There's a pivotal case called West Coast Hotel versus Parish, where the court upholds the minimum wage law against a freedom of contract challenge. Lochner is dead. And that case is also uh, famous historically as, quote, the switch in time that saved nine. Huh. It's the case that defeated FDR's proposed court packing oh, no scheme. Kidding. I wonder where that phrase came from. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So there were a, a lot of laws that really made a difference. So as, as we said, you know, if you just tuned in, uh, Bert Cohen here, we're on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, law professor Michelle Gilman. We're talking about what laws have enabled uh, and basically aided and abetted the uh, transfer of wealth from the lower and middle class to the top, top few the laws that make it happen, and maybe we can do something about it. Uh, what, what about uh, uh, in the 1970s? That It was different then, that's what you say, in terms of the economic fairness. What was the Supreme Court then as opposed to now? Yeah, well, just to step back in time for a moment, from sure. 1953 to 1969, you have the Warren Court, which is yes. known um, for being a liberal court. It yes. brought a lot of change for civil rights and civil liberties, that was the era of Brown versus Board, which uh -huh. invalidated racial segregation in the schools. There were cases that established the right of one person, one vote, cases uh -huh. that struck down mm -hmm. poll taxes. The court recognizes a right to contraception. And so all of these impacts, they help economic 
equality because they expand opportunity for people who were previously excluded. That being said, the Warren Court was not particularly great for organized labor. In 1969, Nixon appoints Berger as chief justice. So this is, that's the era of the Berger Court. Mm-hmm. And it was a period of transition from the more liberal Warren Court to the more conservative Rehnquist Court. Unions had a mixed record before the Berger Court, which was slightly tilted against union organizational efforts. But it was also the court that issued Roe versus Wade and the court that gave sex discrimination heightened scrutiny. Uh, it's also a court that approved of busing to desegregate schools. Mm. So in that era, there are progressive decisions that support economic equality through better education, through more fair workplace laws, reproductive, reproductive justice. It's also directly tied to economic justice, which is a link that I think it's overlooked mm. debates. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when women can control the timing and the size of their families, they're able to make better educational and employment decisions which then foster their economic security. So um, much more progressive in terms of civil rights and civil liberties throughout this time period. Yeah, we've come a long way since then. It's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate for sure. But uh, I guess things do swing sometimes, but it's up to people to, you know, we don't, we are not powerless. I think since the late 60s, when a lot of us were involved in the civil rights movement and ending the war, somehow we've come to believe we are powerless, but we are not powerless. And we can uh, make some noise and affect, affect the laws. And, and you write, uh, Michelle Gilman, that since the 1970s, quote, the court has issued a series of rulings that have benefited businesses and the wealthy at the expense of the working class and that uh, the groups that support them. This has arguably made, the court, made it a court for the 1%. So I want to spend some time now talking about those, how the Supreme Court justices enabled the current extreme economic inequality. So my sense is, uh, and I, I don't know if I'm right on this. That's why I have experts on the show. Aside from court rulings, the rush to radical economic in- inequality in a way kicked off with Reagan in the 1980s and his destruction of the flight controllers union, PATCO. And that was one of the first things that he did. What were some of the rulings by the courts during that period that exacerbated the problem? You're Absolutely right that the decline of unions is strongly linked to growing economic inequality. Estimates are that about one-fifth to one-third the rise in wage inequality can be contributed to declining unionization. In 1986, we get the Rehnquist Court, which is in place until around uh, 2005, and the Rehnquist Court majority is not a fan of unions. There are decisions that basically halt union organizing among immigrant workers, that permit retaliatory firings, that keep union organizers off employer property. Uh, This court also lets a lot of pretty harsh lower court rulings stand. There are also cases that are tough on employees, such as a 1991 case that ruled that companies can require their workers as a condition of employment to sign away their rights to sue employers in court and instead push them into arbitration. So they have issued a lot of laws that have... uh hurt unions for sure. And of course, this brings up the obvious uh, recent passing of Justice Antonin Scalia, who was a Reagan appointee. How much of a force on the court on these kind of issues was uh, Scalia? And and what was his role on issues which affect consumers and workers? I, I get the sense it was pretty significant. Definitely. 
Justice Scalia was the longest-serving member of the current court and also one of the most divisive. He has had a huge intellectual impact in articulating his originalist theory of constitutional interpretation. This made him a giant in the conservative legal movement. Hmm. But in the court itself, he didn't actually write that many court-majority opinions because he wasn't that good at gaining consensus. He's quite well-known for his scathing dissents. But he did write some majority opinions that are really bad for employees and consumers, and particularly his decisions um, that push people into arbitration in lieu of court. He wrote a series of cases that effectively strip employees and consumers from their ability to sue in court. So you might ask, well, what's wrong with arbitration? <laughs> and my take on it, because I represent clients who are sometimes also pushed into arbitration, is for one thing, it's expensive. You yes. have to pay an arbitrator. You don't have to pay a judge. And my clients who are all low income cannot afford arbitration. In arbitration, there are no appeals. There are no juries. There are no uniform rules of procedure or evidence that would apply if you were in court. Um, arbitration results tend to favor businesses hmm. because the people who serve as arbitrators want to be picked to serve in additional cases, and businesses are the repeat players. Hmm. Arbitration awards tend to be smaller than jury awards, and because arbitration is confidential and it's hard to find out what happens in those forums, they don't lead to the possibility of social reform the way litigation can because it shines a light on practices. So this push to arbitration um, has had major, major, major impacts on the rights of everyday people. Yeah, and, and justice ain't cheap, that's for sure. I mean, I, I, it's amazing how, you know, people that can afford it tend to have justice on their side, which makes it, of course, an injustice. And I can think of lots of different examples. Um, but I find this, I wanted to ask about this, too. You say that this current Supreme Court is, quote, the most pro-business court since the Second World War. Well, what does that mean? Is it not good for the national economy to be pro-business? Tell us some examples there. We want businesses to be productive and profitable, but not at the expense of employees and consumers. True. The pro-business stance in today's Supreme Court is no accident. Um, back in 1971, future Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell was then a corporate attorney. He wrote a well-known memo for the Chamber of Commerce urging corporate America to cultivate its oh, political nice. power through better organization and long-range planning at mm. the time. Powell and other business leaders were really panicked by a lot of progressive policy activism, such as by Ralph Nader, and they had the sense that employers were facing political setbacks. Businesses rise to the challenge, and their effort pays off in the long run. There was this major study recently, uh, which was co-authored by conservative appeals court judge Richard Posner, that concluded that the current Roberts Court is the most pro-business since the end of World War II. So... By comparison, if you look at the Warren Court, which I talked about, uh, their rulings were pro-business in 29% of cases. It rises to 47% under the Burger Court. And between 1986 and 2005, under Chief Justice Rehnquist, it was 51%. Wow. Under Chief Justice Roberts, it's risen to 61%. Oh, my. And it's not just the rulings themselves wow. that are different. The Roberts Court is hearing a higher percentage of cases brought by businesses, and some of its decisions, like Citizens United, that I'm sure we'll talk about in oh, a little yeah. bit, have had really, really massive impacts. 
Wow, that that is that's a, an amazing uh, list of statistics there about uh, which side they're taking. Uh, it's 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 phenomenal, and you know, one it, it, it can be pro business, but unless you're pro consumer, it's you know rather tough to have a strong uh, economy. It, you can't just have it all weighted to the top, but it seems to be going that way. And in your article, uh, uh, Professor Gilman, you talk about uh, a number of of specific rulings which have impacted and exacerbated the economic divide. Uh, divide. There's a few examples. One case is AT and T versus Concepcion. I wonder if you could tell us about that and what that meant to the economic picture. Sure. So in that case, a group of consumers filed a class action in arbitration against AT&T for deceptive advertising. AT&T had advertised free cell phones, but when the consumers got their bill, they were billed $30 each. Doesn't sound so free anymore. Um, so when they sued in California state court, AT&T defended by pointing to the fine print in their cell phone contracts. Um, and in the fine print, it said that consumers were prohibited from filing a class action in an arbitration forum. Wow. Yet California had a law that prohibited this sort of language. It prohibited bans on class actions in either arbitration or litigation. And the reason that law was enacted is it recognized that people cannot afford to bring a lawsuit over $30, right? Your filing fees, if you went down to your local court, would be more than that. Instead, consumers need to come together to hold companies accountable. But Justice Scalia, in a majority decision that was 5-4, struck down the California law. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, it means companies can not only require people to agree to arbitration, Hmm. they can also ban class actions within binding arbitration clauses. And you're probably signing these agreements all the time, right? Every time you get a cell phone, sign up for cable, put a parent in a nursing home, apply for a bank account, book a hotel room, shop online, accept a new job, read the fine print, because these clauses are everywhere. And (laughs) we have Justice Scalia to thank for much of that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, like everybody, everybody, of course, reads all the fine print. (laughs) But that's that's fascinating how they kind of sneak it in there. And, you know, in a way... You have your warning. It's there in the fine print. But uh, so what was the, uh, the, the outcome of that case? Did, did the good guys win? No. I mean, in that case, um, Justice Scalia approved that language. And so then the class action arbitration fell, fell apart, which wow. was, is the goal of what companies want to happen. Wow. That really is a, is a, a hard hit on on you know, being able to know what you're doing and to, and to have some uh, degree of fairness. Uh, another, I mean, at the University of uh, Baltimore School of Law, you serve as co-director of the Center on Applied Feminism. That must be interesting stuff. Tell us about the impact on working class women of the decision in the Walmart versus Dukes case, please. As a little bit of background, I think it's important to understand a little bit about the gender gap and the decreasing share of women in the workplace, because there is a gender dimension to economic inequality, just as there is a race dimension. Absolutely. With regard to women, they make about 78 cents to every dollar earned by men. And while that gap, it did shrink a lot, um, shrunk about 60% in 1978 to around 78% today, it's been really hard to erase. It hasn't moved since about 1990. And it's much wider for women of color, which is 64 cents to the dollar. Oh. In addition, the female labor force particip- 
labor force participation um, did increase a lot after World War II, we know, due to the women's rights movement. Mm -hmm. But since the 1990s, participation by women in the labor force has declined from a high of 74% in 1999 to 69% today. Hmm. And this matters because women contribute an increasingly large share of earnings to their family's income. Okay, so back to the Walmart case. Uh, In 2001, a proposed class of over 1.5 million employees of Walmart filed a complaint alleging that Walmart paid them less than men, despite the women's overall better performance and greater seniority, and that Walmart also provided women with fewer opportunities for promotion to management. And the plaintiffs claimed that this was happening because Walmart's management was allowed to use discretion in making pay and promotion decisions. Justice Scalia, this is another opinion that he authored, another 5-4 opinion, held that the class could not go forward. So that was the end of the case. And to boil down his reasoning, it was that Walmart is really too big to be sued. He also (laughs) had a really old-fashioned view of employment discrimination as something that's committed by evildoers. That's not really the case anymore. There's a lot of research. (sighs) Justice Ginsburg talks about this in her dissent to the opinion, that a lot of discrimination today is very complex, it's subtle, and fueled by unconscious bias. And when you have a discretionary Uh pay and promotion system like Walmart had, those biases just flourish. So, unfortunately, as a result of impact, those 1.5 million women did not get the relief they were seeking, but it's also been bad for class action litigation generally. Really? Um, one investigative study found that in the aftermath of the decision, courts were overturning jury verdicts, throwing out settlements, wow. rejecting class actions, and in many instances, undoing <sighs> years and years of litigation. Another um, detrimental impact is the case might actually lead to even more discrimination oh, because it gives employers a perverse incentive to maintain subjective employment practices as a way of evading legal liability. So not good news for women and not good news for workers in general. <laughs> I thought I knew how bad this stuff was. It's, uh, it's absolutely amazing that they could do that. And the concept of uh, uh, too big to be sued, whoa. <laughs> yeah, nothing like uh, equal justice under the law, right? Uh, if you just tuned in, this is Keeping Democracy Alive. Uh, we're all participating in that. Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is uh, law professor Michelle Gilman, talking about how uh, the courts have uh, exacerbated the problem of uh, economic inequality. And it's, it's something uh, not a lot of us uh, really know. And one thing that's, that's interested me for a long time, uh, nuclear power gets a pass. They are protected by the Price-Anderson Act, which says... If there's a meltdown, pff, no problem. They don't have any liability. They couldn't exist if they had to, uh, you know, buy uh, liability insurance because pff, nobody would give it to them. But the law protects them from that. So, with this, aside from that, uh, the public has a right to sue for liability if a business is in the wrong. And you're right that our our buddy there, Antonin Scalia, quote, handed businesses the ability to insulate themselves from liability. How did that adversely affect workers and consumers? I can only imagine. Yeah. Well, some examples are in the arbitration case and the Walmart case we talked about. And it's not just Justice Scalia. It's the Uh, conservative mm. majority of which he's a part. Mm -hmm. Um, The Alliance for Justice has cataloged 
all the hurdles that this court has erected as a barrier to the average person seeking justice. So this conservative majority, they've kicked consumers and workers out of court by favoring arbitration agreements and limiting class actions, as we've talked about, Mm -hmm. by shielding corporations from liability, by insulating them from environmental regulations and antitrust regulations, and making it easier for companies to discriminate against women and minorities. So it's tough out there for workers and consumers who want to assert their rights because a lot of their access to these uh, judicial forums are just being cut out from under them. And certainly, you know, Ronald Reagan had his conservative to right-wing appointees and George uh, Bush the first, George Bush the second. But there's all, I mean, the the, the presidents, all, you know, they appoint uh, members of the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, but they also uh, appoint other members of, of lower courts throughout the country. I want, you know, Jimmy Carter was president, uh, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, and of course, Barack Obama have... Have they tried to uh, uh, make changes in the area of which you speak, or have they kind of gone along with it? Well, President Obama has really diversified the federal judiciary. About 42% of his appointments have been women. About 36% have been minorities. The federal bench is starting to look a lot more like the rest of America, which is wonderful. And we also need to remember that President Obama nominated Justices Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor, who are always in the dissent. All of these 5-4 decisions I talk about. Oh, everyone. the side of the four. Absolutely. So definitely uh, President Obama, through his judicial appointments, has really reshaped much of the federal judiciary for years to come because all of these judges have life appointments. No, well, that's good. And, and So hopefully it will you know, yield fruit, and it loops back to the importance of the presidential election because it is the president that has this appointment power. Absolutely, and, and that's one of the key things for me anyway. I mean, maybe, it doesn't seem like a lot of people when it comes to actually voting in the general election think about the Supreme Court appointees. To me... That may be the biggest issue, really. I mean, our rights are are in the balance here, and uh, you know, you got to think about wh- who would be appointed, and uh, you know, we'll we'll have to see. I can't imagine uh, appointments by Ted Cruz. Ugh. I think Donald Trump is probably toast by now, but who the heck knows? Uh, it it's so important to when you're choosing a presidential candidate, and you know, members of the U.S. Senate, uh, you know, have to concur. Uh, with yep. uh, the the presidential appointment, uh, and and so getting back to your article, you say that the Supreme Court has reinforced three decades of wage stagnation by denying workers the tools to improve their conditions and pay. I wonder if you could say more about that. Wage stagnation currently is terrible. American workers are very productive. We need to give them a hand. Since 1979, there has been a net productivity growth of 64 percent. Hmm. But wages are not growing along with that. After adjusting for inflation, today's average hourly wage has just about the same purchasing power as it did in 1979. Okay. By contrast, if this productivity was shared across the workforce, the typical worker's income would be about 35% higher now than it was in the 1970s. It's a pretty bleak story. And for workers of color, they have hourly wages far below those of their white counterparts. Mm-hmm. So in 2014, the median black and 
Hispanic wages were only about 75% and 70% of the median white wage, which itself is stagnant. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, workers, they, they use many methods to try to improve their economic status. They mm-hmm. organize and collectively bargain. They file class actions to remedy discrimination. They file fair wage and hour lawsuits. They lobby legislatures to try and improve their rights. Right. And <laughs> the pattern that we're seeing is the Supreme Court cutting back on each of these tools. Wow. Just goes on and on and on. The race to the bottom. Um, and, of course, you know, a lot of workers, you know, back in the in, when there was a middle class, uh, were members of unions. And, but, obviously, membership has declined greatly in recent decades. And the power of unions, uh, political power and legal power, uh, seems to have declined. Have, how have court decisions led to this decline in union membership? Do, do you think it was intentional to, to destroy union membership? Yes, the court has contributed to these overall dynamics, and it has been intentional. Justice Alito, in particular, seems to be on a mission to take down unions. <laughs> he issued a decision in 2012 that um, required non-union members to opt in to financial support of union political activities rather than to opt out, as was the practice. And the effect is that it limits union ability to raise money for political activity. And then Alito wants to go further and has consistently cast doubt on longstanding precedent upholding agency fees for non-political activity that unions engage in. And the court has very purposefully been granting review of cases that bring these issues to the fore. So he, along with some other conservative justices, was hoping to really put a stake through the power of public <laughs> employee unions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the death of Justice Scalia that you know, we talked about um, has temporarily halted this. Yes, and that, that was a big uh, decision just very, very mm-hmm. recently. I went, just uh, uh, with the passing of Scalia, the, the eight remaining justices deadlocked four to four, letting a c- lower court ruling stand. Uh, and this is this is huge uh, for for unions. Uh, might this be the beginning of a return of a court for all? And maybe just explain a little bit what this uh, decision meant. They let the, the lower court ruling stand. Yeah. So the issue was whether or not public employees could be required to pay agency fees which is another term basically for union dues, to the unions that represent them in collective bargaining. Um, The Ninth Circuit had said, and longstanding precedent says, that this is a perfectly constitutional practice. It not only promotes labor harmony, but it prevents free riders, right, people who don't join a union, but then benefit by all the collective bargaining done on their behalf. Um, Because the court split, it means that the lower court opinion stays in effect. But we need to note that if Justice Scalia were on the bench, a 5-4 decision, it would have been the end of these fees, and it would have devastated the financial resources of unions and their ability to organize. So again, loops right back to what we were just talking about as to the importance of this seat, because we have a closely divided court. This one member makes such a difference. In so many people's lives, and again, we don't often think about that when we think about uh, economic inequality. But the, you know, the, the free riders, the uh, uh, so-called right to work laws uh, that some states are trying to push through, uh, anti-union things. It's it's big, and it, again, unions were there at the same time. There was a large middle class. I think it wasn't coincidental. 
Uh, <laughs> um, no, it's not. I think they've um, researchers have found that um, you know the decline of unions is directly tied to growing wage inequality. It's it's a major factor. Oh, no doubt about it. They they want to destroy it. And you know, bef- in the uh, the previous Gilded Age, uh, it seems that that, that the top you know, 1% or whatever had all the power, but then it changed by law through legislation, through the courts, and now we seem to have uh, reverted. Um, the right to collective bargaining, how long was it supported by law and court decisions, and what happened to it in the case you write about Friedrichs versus California? Well, that was the case we were just talking about. Oh, I see. Split 4-4, so. Uh, oh, okay, I didn't know that. Well, there was another case, Harris versus Quinn, another significant sure. case. What, what did that decision mean for home health care workers? That case was decided in 2014, so just a little bit before um, Friedrichs, and it involved home care wor- health care workers who, you know, they work in really important jobs, They work really hard for very little pay and under very difficult conditions. In recent years, care workers have been organizing to improve their pay and their working conditions, and they've had some great successes. And you might have to hand it to them. It's pretty amazing how successful they've been because they work in individual homes. So organizing isn't that easy, right, in terms of like walking into a workplace and gathering anyone, gathering everyone together. So in Illinois, the state had granted its million home health care workers the right to collectively bargain. In less than 10 years, the pay of these workers doubled, they obtained state-funded health insurance, and they benefited from better training and workplace safety measures because they could collectively bargain. And this is where we uh, end up with Harris versus Quinn, uh-huh. because in that case, a right-to-work foundation, mm. and we need to remember that the right-to-work movement is funded by corporations, oh, yeah. powerful people like the Koch brothers, mm. found some plaintiffs and sued the state. And they said that if workers were forced to pay fees for union representation, this violated the First Amendment. And in Harris versus Quinn, the Supreme Court agreed with that argument. Oh. It ruled that home health care workers were not public employees who still are clearly subject to these fees, um, but rather that home health care workers were partial public employees. Where they came up with this idea, no one knows. Hmm. It's actually quite demeaning of these workers, you know, even the terminology. And so the impact <laughs> is pretty stark because it means the quality of care that people get from these workers is going to be lower, and a lot of hard-fought gains that workers made may be lost. At the same time, the for-profit home health care industry is raking in profits oh, you know, yeah. on the backs of these workers. And so in Friedrichs, which we talked about the 4-4 split, that was the decision where the conservative bloc was hoping to take Harris versus Quinn a step further. It's mm, mm. a temporary halt. Um, due to Friedrichs, but still not good news for this new class of partial public employees, our home health care workers. Partial public employees. It makes me think about uh, certain people being three-fifths <laughs> of a person. Exactly. <laughs> I forget what case that was from the uh, 19th century. But uh, certainly, and that brings up, of course, America's wealthiest tend to be, not always, but tend to be white men. Are there court decisions which have kind of surprisingly enabled or protected wealth and income divides related to race? I mean, how blatant could that be? Well, one that jumps to mind right away, and this is a case that's pending and also relates to the loss of Justice Scalia, is there's an affirmative action case pending right now. Mm. Um, 
where a student who wasn't admitted to the University of Texas is challenging the state affirmative action plan. And so we're waiting to know about the future uh, of affirmative action. And obviously that one. has big consequences for educational opportunities of minorities. And education is one way to ameliorate the effects of economic inequality. So that's just one very current example that springs to mind. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that affirmative action stuff, that's, that's uh, big. And there's a lot of energy on both sides of that issue. And talk mm-hmm. about uh, energy. Many uh, Back in 2011, there was the Occupy Wall Street thing, which got a tremendous amount of attention. And then it sort of stopped, and, and people <laughs> seemed to think the Wall Street, the Occupy Wall Street movement didn't go anywhere, that it failed to achieve its goals. But in your look at, at legal actions, has the Occupy movement affected the discussion in any significant way? Well, I think it's definitely shaped our public discourse. Yeah. That was the great accomplishment, right? You have, in 2012, President Obama gives his State of the Union, and he calls economic inequality the defining challenge of our time. Right. Pope Francis has talked about this, right? He's decrying, and I quote, trickle-down theories which assume that economic growth encouraged by a free market will inevitably succeed in bringing about greater justice <laughs> and inclusiveness in the world. Um, Janet Yellen has been talking about this a lot, Hmm. questioning whether economic inequality is compatible with American values. But what's also interesting is that corporate America is starting to sound the alarm about economic inequality because they're concerned that, you know, people without income don't have any money to buy stuff (laughs) so that it's going to hurt their profits and hinder economic growth. Um, And as we mentioned, it's a defining issue now in the presidential campaign. So the public discourse is radically different, and the public discourse in response to certain legal opinions <clears throat> traces this movement, such as in the backlash to Citizens United. I think that's the best example. But we're not at a time yet where the Supreme Court is sort of taking on and confronting economic inequality in a way that helps the average American. Yeah, that really is uh, is huge. And, and businesses, of course, are looking at their bottom line and you know, if they have a bad public image, it hurts their profits. So at the very least, they care about looking good, whether or not they actually do anything about it. You know, so it has changed that. And, and you know, be, people say that, uh, you know, uh, the courts have to be apolitical. Uh, as you say in your article, we may think of the court as apolitical, but the truth is that justices shape politics in many ways, unquote. And of course... One of the biggest, most impactful decisions of the current Supreme Court was the Citizens United decision, which Bernie Sanders talks about quite a bit as being central to really so many problems that exist in the United States. Now, what did the Citizens United case mean to the political power of the richest among us, and and how did that affect everybody else? The bottom line is that the decision and then the subsequent cases interpreting the decision allow unlimited corporate money, and money from wealthy individuals to flow into elections, and it's resulting in an outsized influence by a handful of wealthy individuals. Politico recently reported that the 100 biggest donors of the 2016 cycle have spent $195 million trying to influence the presidential election, and you can compare that to the $155 million spent by the 2 million smallest donors combined. So... Hmm. More money, more influence. And in the Citizens United decision, you know, part of the court's reasoning was that these independent expenditures don't pose a risk of corruption. 
But how can that be, right? Because if, if a wealthy person or a corporation spends millions to advocate for a candidate, which they're allowed to do, yeah. won't that politician feel indebted to them down the line? It also has racial consequences because the very wealthy are disproportionately yeah. white. Yes. So racial minorities end up with less influence. And the decision also expands this idea that corporations are people. And as <laughs> Justice Stevens said in his dissent in that case, corporations are not themselves members of we the people by whom and for whom our Constitution was established. And Good for him. along the lines of this, corporations as people idea, mm-hmm. you know, lo and behold, a few years later, we get this decision in Hobby Lobby versus Burwell, oh, yeah. where the court holds that corporations can hold religious beliefs, just <laughs> like people do, and that those religious beliefs can outweigh the interests and dignity of workers. So that was the case that held that, yeah, that's amazing. you know, a for-profit company did not have to provide certain forms of contraception to its workers that are mandated under federal law. So we just have this strain now where corporations are being treated as more important than actual people. Didn't we have something in 1776? Didn't we rebel against the kind of government that that had uh, a certain uh, class of people as having all the power and everybody else not having power? We sort of forget about that. And, and it seems that, they, that a lot of the courts are, uh, you know, hearkening back to that, that uh, they have the, these... Uh, corporations as persons as uh as, as someone said uh you know i'll believe corporations are people when they execute one in texas and <laughs> <laughs> and uh that uh uh the the, the you know uh, the, the people say the the argument is the legal argument is that it's free speech how can you limit free speech money equals speech well someone said and you may have heard this before that it's not about free speech it's like but it's like giving one interest a megaphone, an electric megaphone, and everybody else is just, you know, talking on, on an old-fashioned soapbox. It, you know, yeah. what, what about that argument that, that speech equals money? Well, I think what you said is a very apt analogy because it is skewing speech. It's making some speech louder and more important than other speech. So democracy itself, it seems to me, has has been impacted by the creation of these these super PACs, which have so much money and so much power, which makes me think of uh, uh, Hillary Clinton. Release those transcripts. You know, what did you say to them that got you so much money? You know, where is the influence there? If that's not influence buying, boy, it sure looks like it. And why wouldn't she release that what what she said to them if it's not buying influence? Ah, if you just tuned in, uh, it is frustrating. Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today, very informative, Michelle Gilman, professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law, writing about uh, the courts and uh, economic inequality. You know, there's a lot of anger at Congress these days. I understand Congress in general is, is less popular than cockroaches and uh, government in general as being unresponsive to the issues facing average people. And this, is, I, th- I think, has led to the rise of, of the Tea Party. What is the court's role in enabling Congress to be so tied to the interests of the wealthy as compared to the common person? How have, how have the courts enabled Congress to, to become so, you know, owned, uh, you know, just become like a, a wholly owned subsidiary of the big corporations? 
I think a big way is through Citizens United and its progeny, because campaign spending is feeding extreme political polarization. And as a result of polarization, we get a Congress that in some ways is marked more by inaction than action, because polarization leads to gridlock. And that in turn makes it very difficult to redress inequality and all the problems that we're talking about. Hmm. We know from major political science studies that Congress is more responsive to the interests of the rich than the poor. In fact, they pretty much ignore the interests of the poor. Um, There's research showing that Republicans are particularly responsive to rich donors. Oh, I've noticed that. Um, And (laughs) Citizens United, you know, allows this highly polarized framework to continue. And, and there's also something that's, that's really uh, surprised me. I, I tend to think of it as uh, sort of a 21st century Jim Crow, the efforts to suppress voters, uh, voter ID laws. The courts have consistently enabled such act. How do these decisions affect the legal basis for continued economic inequality? Well, these laws, they impose so many barriers that keep low-income people and people of color and disabled people away from the polls. We're talking about strict photo identification requirements, the elimination of same-day voter registration, reductions in the number of early voting days. Some states also have felon disenfranchisement. In addition, we require people to vote on work days, which is very hard for low-income people who tend to have very little flexibility in their work schedules. And here again, the Supreme Court bears a lot of the blame. It has recently upheld voter identification laws even acknowledging that the factual record contains no evidence of any voter fraud. It's like trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. The Supreme Court also struck down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And there was, despite a fully factual, fully developed factual record that Congress had assembled to establish the ongoing need for the act, and under Section 5, it had required certain jurisdictions with past histories of discrimination to seek approval from the Justice Department, before they made changes to their voting processes. Um, And that entire framework is now gone. So you might have heard there were these really long lines during the primaries in Arizona. People were like waiting five hours to vote in Maricopa County. Um, Some polling locations had run out of ballots. People were leaving in frustration. And what had happened is that county had reduced its number of polling places by 70%. Yeah. And there are estimates that as many as 20,000 voters had been disenfranchised that day. Okay, that would not have happened if Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was still in place. No kidding. Because Arizona was one of the covered jurisdictions. So it's just leading to disenfranchisement of many, many people, suppressing their voices. um, And I think it breeds a lot of, like, cynicism in the public about whether they matter or not. Absolutely amazing. It's It's a real assault on democracy and our ability to have citizen participation in government. And that is is democracy and the idea of a republic of the people. Republic. It, uh, it, these, these voter ID laws, you know, people think, oh, well, you know, you got to stop, uh, you know, fake voting, but that, it just basically doesn't happen. And it's a cover to really no fake voting. Yeah, there there, there is no fake. (laughs) It's infinitesimal. It, it really That's is. a much bigger problem are all these tactics that discourage voting. That's the real problem, not voter fraud. Well, by providing the legal basis for concentration of wealth, as you write, quote, the wealthy amass disproportionate influence over lawmakers and the funds uh, to develop litigation strategies that favor their interests. More and more people on the left and right 
and I emphasize the left and right are demanding real change in this structure. How optimistic might you be that we might be reaching a tipping point where the courts once again protect the rights of those without great wealth and power? And what can people do? This really reiterates the point we both made earlier, that a lot hinges on the upcoming election, obviously, and the next Supreme Court appointment that will follow it. And the next president will also make many appointments to the lower federal courts, as we talked about. They matter, too. The bottom line is that our current state of economic inequality is the result of laws and policy. It's not natural. It's not inevitable. We created it. (laughs) We chose this current course as a society, but we can choose a new course. Um, We don't have to throw up our hands. Yes. We saw an era of shared prosperity after an era of great inequality. We can do it again, but there has to be the political will and the demands by the populace uh, to do that. So I think all of us, we have to get to the ballot box, and we have to support policies that create equality and opportunity for all. And aside from voting for uh, the candidates who are going to address this issue, you mentioned the Alliance for Justice. I wonder if there are websites to which you can point listeners that might be able to do something about this. Um, hmm, It's a little hard off the top of my head, but there are a lot of great groups out there, um, legal groups who are really fighting for equality, um, to get a change in current Supreme Court opinions, and to open access of the courts to people in ways that are excluding them. So Alliance for Justice is one. The Brennan Center um, is another. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot. I wish I had a list handy, but I don't. Uh, well, that's all right. There's, I, I've always liked the uh, National Lawyers Guild myself. And, uh, yeah, they're fantastic, definitely. Yeah, they really are. And, uh, well, I, I really appreciate your taking the time. This is important stuff here and uh, being knowledgeable about this. And, uh, you know, if we can give people the power and and restore democracy hey that would be a a very nice thing thank you so much for being with us on keeping democracy alive doing your part to keep democracy alive michelle gilman uh, professor of law at the university of baltimore school of law thanks so much for being with us thank you so much it's been a pleasure and this is a song by the rolling stones called rough justice thanks very much for listening do your part keep democracy alive okay (laughs) 